I want to spend some time discussing the idea of institutional memory through history. It's more important than you may think. It shapes us, it defines us, it controls us, it creates ideas and memories in our minds. Let me explain. Why is it that Americans today say we won our independence in 1776 from the British, when actually no one today was alive in 1776? The USA of 1776 and the UK of 1776 are very different from whenever you're listening to this. Why indeed do countries celebrate things like Independence Day or something like that at all? How come Germans today and Japanese today, as in 2021, are somewhat still berated for something their ancestors did in 1945? How is it that we humans who did something back in prehistoric times refer to that as we humans did that in prehistoric times, but none of us actually did anything? The Russians, for example, might think, well, Catherine the Great, she was great. Well, was she? What have what you got to do with that? How can, for example, someone in India associate something with Mahatma Gandhi? These really are questions that help decide what people do today based on the history that they're shaped with. This is not your own memory. This is a collective memory, an institutional memory. Institutional memory can be defined as stored knowledge within an institution. Within any group, tools and techniques will need to be adapted to meet that institution's needs. These adjustments are learned over time and taught to new group members, preventing them from encountering the same problems and developing an existing solution. In this way, institutions save time and resources that might otherwise be wasted. Institutional memory requires continuous memory transmission between group members. It is therefore based on continuity of group membership over time. Think of it like a cult membership. Elements of institutional memory can be found in companies, professional groups, government agencies, religious groups, academic collaborations, and thus throughout cultures. Whether between people and through written sources, there are different ideas about how institutional memory is transferred. Organizations that translate historical data into useful knowledge and wisdom gain institutional knowledge. Memory depends on the preservation of this information or data and the analytical skills needed for its effective use in an organization. Indeed, the most forward-thinking corporations, for example, will have top-notch learning, development, training, and digital knowledge management systems. So what then is memory? The broad definition is that memory is the faculty of the brain by which data or information is encoded, stored, and retrieved whenever needed. 
It is the retention of information over time to influence future action. In psychology, implicit memory is one of the two main types of long-term memory. It is acquired and used unconsciously and can affect thoughts and behaviours. One of its most common forms is procedural memory, which allows people to perform certain tasks without conscious awareness of these previous experiences. For example, remembering how to tie one's shoes or ride a bicycle without consciously having to think about those activities each time you start doing it. The counterpart of illicit memory is explicit memory or declarative memory which refers to the conscious, deliberate memory of factual information, previous experiences and concepts. This explicit memory is what we are mostly concerned with in this episode. If past events could not be remembered, it would be impossible for language, relationships or personal identity to develop. We know when we lose memory, we see people who have memory loss or amnesia, and they do not recall their own memories. In our lives, we may forget what happened yesterday or a year ago. Sometimes a conversation may trigger a long-lost memory. Some of us forget what we said just a few hours ago. Intervention can make it difficult to memorize and search. There is, for example, when learning new information, it makes it difficult to remember old information and proactive interference, where prior learning disrupts the recall of new information. While interference can lead to forgetting, it is important to remember that old information can make it easier to learn new information. Things that impact your, as in you and mine, and other people's memories can be split into two factors, stress and sleep. Stress has a significant impact on the formation and learning of memory. In response to stressful situations, the brain releases hormones and neurotransmitters that affect hippocampus memory coding processes. Animal behavioral studies show that chronic stress produces adrenal hormones that affect the hippocampal structure in the brain of rats. An experimental study by some German cognitive psychologists, Schwab and Wolf, demonstrate how learning under stress also decreases memory recall in humans. Stressful life experiences may be a cause of memory loss as we age. Then there's sleep. Making memories occurs through a three-step process which can be enhanced by nothing else other than sleep. These three are acquisition, which is the process and storage and retrieval of new information in memory, consolidation, and recall. Sleep affects memory consolidation. During sleep, the neural connections in the brain are strengthened. This improves the brain's ability to stabilize and preserve memories. What the impact of stress and sleep does to memory leads me to ask the question. Is my memory like a recording tool? 
Well, the answer to that is a quick one. No, it is not a recording tool. In fact, research has revealed that our memories are constructed. Current hypotheses suggest that constructive processes allow individuals to stimulate and imagine future episodes, future happenings, and scenarios. Since the future is not an exact repetition of the past, simulation of the future episodes of life requires a complex system that can draw on the past in a manner that flexibly extracts and recombines elements of previous experiences. A constructive rather than a reproductive system. In short, people can construct their memories when they encode them and or when they try to recall them. To illustrate this further, consider a study by Elizabeth Loftus and John Palmer back in 1974, where people were instructed to watch a film of a traffic accident and then asked about what they saw. These researchers found that the people who were asked how fast were the cars going when they smashed into each other versus how fast did the cars go when they hit each other, people gave different estimates. In fact, some gave higher estimates than those who were asked. So the smashed gave higher estimates than those who were asked if they hit each other. Further, when asked a week later whether they had seen broken glass in the film, those who had been asked the question with smashed were twice more likely to report that they had witnessed broken glass than those who were asked about when it was hit rather than smashed. The film did not have broken glass in it at all. Thus, the wording of the question distorted the memory of the event by the audience. The wording of the question led people to construct different memories of the event itself. Those who were asked the question with smashed recalled a more serious car accident than they had seen. The results of this experiment have been replicated worldwide and researchers have consistently shown that when people receive misleading information, they tend to distort a phenomenon known as misinformation effect. This misinformation effect occurs when your, yes, you and my, recall of episodic memories becomes less accurate because of post-event information, i.e. information fed to you after the event has taken place. Research has also shown that asking individuals to repeatedly imagine actions that they have never done or events that they have never experienced could lead to false memories in of themselves. Researchers asked college students to report how certain they were that they experienced a number of events as children. Example, broke a window with a hand. And then two weeks later asked them to imagine four of those events. The researchers found that one-fourth of the students asked to imagine the four events reported that they had actually experienced such events as children. That is, when asked to imagine the events, they were more confident that they experienced them. Research reported back in 2013 that it is possible to artificially stimulate 
prior memories and artificially implant false memories in mice during experiments. When our memories are stored in long-term memory, we like to think of our memories as something stable and constant. But this is not the case. There are many studies that have shown that memory consolidation is not a singular event, but it is again put through the process known as reconsolidation. In short, explicit memory is malleable, meaning can be shaped. Indeed, in psychology, a false memory is a phenomenon where someone recalls something that did not happen or recalls it differently from the way it happened. Collective memory refers to a shared pool of memories, knowledge and information from a social group that is significantly related to the identity of the group. For us, collective or institutional memory, or as I would rather call it, institutional knowledge, is more interesting across psychology, sociology, philosophy, anthropology, meaning it's relevant for recalling, telling, and understanding history, politics, and the human mindset. The theoretical goal of history very broadly is to provide a comprehensive, accurate, and unbiased portrayal of past events. Did you hear that? Comprehensive, accurate, and unbiased portrayal of past events? This could include the representation and comparison of multiple perspectives and the integration of these views as detailed or, or as details to provide a complete and accurate account. In contrast, collective memory focuses on a single perspective. For instance, the perspective of one group, nation, or community. Therefore, collective memory represents past events as associated with values, narratives, and biases specific to that group. Some studies have found that people from different nations can have major differences in their recollections of the same past. In one study where American and Russian students were instructed to recall significant events from World War II, and these lists of events were compared, the majority of events recalled by the American and Russian students were not shared. They were different. To unpack this a bit, understand that history cannot and is not a comprehensive, accurate, and unbiased portrayal of events precisely because collective memory and memory in general is by default not comprehensive, not accurate, and not unbiased. This takes us back to tribes. In the good old days when our ancestors lived in small communities and tribes, hell, what am I saying? Some people still live around those societies today. Anyway, my memory is rubbish these days. Jokes aside, our collective explicit memory stems from wanting to be or actually being part of multiple tribes. In institutions, tribal knowledge is any unwritten information that is not commonly known by others within that organization. This term is used most when referencing information that may need to be known by others in order to produce quality tribal outcomes. So, the USA tribe may want to know Soviet 
tribal secrets during the Cold War. Likewise, Microsoft Tribe may want to know Apple Tribe secrets. Or Manchester City Football Football Club, Club Tribe may want to know Arsenal Football Club secrets. The Arsenal football fan may also work at Apple and live in the USA. That one person right there has three tribes. Religion is one of the most important institutional forces acting on collective memory, attributed to all humanity, if you believe in it. It is a massive driver of tribal institutional and any explicit institutional theory of memory out there. Ideology is another, politics another, geography another, culture, language, upbringing, and so on. Marxists, in addition, believe social systems, cultures, and organizations have an interest in controlling and using institutional memories. They do actually have a point there, because that is the point. Watching even one football match between Manchester City and Arsenal, two opposing fans can see the same event recorded and replayed and still feel that offside ruling was right or wrong. This is happening in real time and we still have recordings and yet people see things differently. So what does this understanding of human memory and collective institutional explicit memory mean for history and how can you and how should we tackle anything from the past, present, and future. My unscientific study of 10,000 years of history and my time travel abilities into the future, combined with my amazing ability to meditate and be in the present moment, all at the same time, tells me three things. One, whatever your view or someone else's view is on a topic, it is a mess, even in real time. Number two, history is the view of the author or the speaker, not the victors, as so many people seem to suggest. And number three, just because someone is a knowledgeable expert on a topic does not make them a knowledgeable expert on said topic. What you know and what they tell you isn't just history, but opinions, views, outright lies, fancy stories, and broad-based BS to make it interesting. Some throw in fancy citations. Yes, there will be some elements of so-called truth. But we, you, me, we do not want truth. We want an exceptional story. So Winston Churchill, the great World War II leader, was a failed politician who made massive errors when he was in government during World War I. So much so that he was in the political wilderness between the two wars. Worse still, in the 1945 general election and the 1950 election, he was defeated at the ballot box and sent packing by the voter who voted for Clement Attlee as Prime Minister instead. Today, there is a statue of Churchill in Parliament Square. There are tons of books on the chap and he himself has authored many history books himself. However, before 1874, the year of his birth, he was not part of the British National Collective Memory. That got added after he died in 1965. Legends developed. Many today in 2021 forget that he was unpopular before he became PM in 1940. 
Many forget that he lost two general elections after being a wartime PM, only getting back into office late in 1951. He was also part of the problem if you are an anti-imperialist or someone who believes that he was solely responsible for the Bengal famine and the deaths of three million Indians there. I'm going to throw some quotes at you, all attributed to Churchill. First quote. If you are not a liberal when you're 25, you have no heart. If you're not a conservative by the time you're 35, you have no brain. Second quote. Courage is what it takes to stand up and speak. Courage is also what it takes to sit down and listen. Third quote. If you're going through hell, keep going. Fourth quote. With integrity, nothing else counts. Without integrity, nothing else counts. And the fifth quote. However beautiful the strategy, you should occasionally look at the results. Now, he actually never said any of those. It is in none of his recorded speeches, books, or anywhere. It is, however, all over the internet, and they keep showing up on a million social media inspiration posts. Someone invented them, and it sounds like something he'd have said. So maybe he did, or someone else misremembered, or something happened. In fact, one of my favorite quotes from Churchill is, Jaw jaw and war war. Jaw jaw is better than war war. Winston Churchill's official biographer, Sir Martin Gilbert, speaking of this quote, noted that Churchill said, Meeting jaw to jaw is better than war. Four years later, during a visit to Australia, Harold Macmillan, future Prime Minister, said the words, usually and wrongly, attributed to Churchill, and he said, Jaw-jaw is better than war-war. The credit to that is Harold Macmillan, not Winston Churchill. Keep in mind that for the last few minutes, we've been talking about Churchill, i.e. someone from not even that long ago. That too, from a time with plentiful TV footage, books, voice recordings, and so on and so forth. He, Winston, is one of the most written about people in modern times. After all, he was in government for both world wars. What if we keep going back in time? How much murkier does it get? What of our view of Otto von Bismarck or the Russo-Japanese War? What about Edo period in Japan with the French Revolution and Napoleon? What about the French Revolution, the American War of Independence, Louis XIV, the Mughal Empire, Mexico's independence, the Boxer Rebellion, fall of Constantinople in 1453, the Crusades, Masa Musa, Catherine II of Russia, Ashoka the Great, the Buddha, the Nika riots, the Roman Empire, Ramesses II, Hammurabi. Our institutional memory is messy. Our learned history is messier still. There's actually something called the illusory truth effect. This is the tendency to believe false information to be correct after repeated exposure. Kind of history in a nutshell. When assessing the truth, whatever that is, people rely on whether the information is consistent with their understanding or whether it feels familiar. The first condition is logical because people compare new information to what they already know. 
Repetition facilitates the process processing of statements in relation to new, unrepeated statements, leading people to believe that the repeated conclusion is truer. The illusory effect of truth was also associated with hindsight bias, in which the memory of confidence is distorted after receiving the truth. This means that if you say something often enough, it is believed and often believed as fact. Let's take that example on Churchill's sayings. Unless you can get millions of people to listen to and remember this podcast, the chances are that all the people who stumbled across those statements attributed to Sir Winston will forever believe that they are his sayings. By 2129, in over a hundred years from now, it might even sound scandalous if you repeated what I just said. In history, cornering the narratives becomes particularly important as time progresses. Churchill already branded his predecessor, Neville Chamberlain, as a weak prime minister who was appeasing Hitler. Yet, in 1938 or 1939, the British were not ready for war and were not willing to go to war, having exited World War I just 20 or 21 years prior. Unfortunately for Chamberlain, he died of natural causes later in 1940, soon after leaving the office of Prime Minister. Churchill had, 1945 to 1951, then 1955 to 1965, to set the record um, straight. These days, the popular narrative is appeasement of dictators is bad, shows weakness, and Chamberlain was not bold, etc. The narrative forgets the context. It even forgets that ultimately Neville Chamberlain, as Prime Minister, was the man to have declared war, and even that one year or so delay helped the country mobilize and set the public opinion to go to that war. What is the truth? or the illusion of truth here. An additional component of memory we ought to, as fans of history and current affairs, consider is hindsight bias. Hindsight bias, also known as the knew-it-all-along phenomenon, is the common tendency for people to perceive past events as having been more predictable than they actually were. People often believe that after an event has occurred, they would have predicted or perhaps even would have known with a high degree of certainty what the outcome of the event would have been before the event occurred. Hindsight bias may cause distortions of memories of what was known or believed before an event occurred and is a significant source of overconfidence regarding an individual's ability to predict outcomes for future events. Examples of hindsight bias can be seen in the writings of historians describing outcomes of battles or other events in time. Contemporaries would just not know what the outcome would be, but historians, of course they know. So there you have it. Your memory fools you. It fools the history you read, and it fools the understanding of the world around you. These biases, these hindsights, these institutional memories, they create an identity beyond the you, identity of you, because it's not technically you, it's not your background, it's not your identity, it's not your DNA, it's not your family. You kind of adopt it, just like somebody who might migrate 
from country A to country B suddenly has to adopt to a new culture, a new language, a new history, a new flag, a new anthem. And then they might move to a third country and do it all over again. That is the power of institutional memory. And that is why countries do what they do. With that in mind, do you remember? What do you remember from this episode? Thanks again for your time. This has been the Alternative History Podcast. Podcast.